Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. My name's Glenn McDorman. And my name's Brent Helt. In this episode of Hanging Out with the Dream King, we discuss Sandman number 14, Collector's cover date of April 1990. The art, again, by Mike Dringenberg and uh, Malcolm Jones III as inker. Robbie Bush is the uh, colorist, unless you have the redone version, in which case it is xylenol. Um, and again, Todd Klein as editor, um, Art Young as associate editor, Karen Berger as editor. And, uh, yeah, this is, uh, an extra large issue we've got for us today, Glenn. Yeah. 36 pages rather than the, the standard 24 page uh, format that, that single issue comics are, are, are typically in. And it's not just that it's got 50% more pages than usual. I think that there's a lot of substance packed into this as well. A lot more than I really remember there being. I remember this being a very exciting issue because of the manner in which it advances the plot, but there is a lot of rich, deep thematic material going on here as well that I think is going to take us a while to unpack. So uh, more pages, more substance. So buckle up is what I would, what I would say. Get some, make some popcorn, get some potato chips. Yeah, I agree. And um, as you and I had been talking about before we turned on the mics, I recalled this as well as being <laughs> – I thought this was two different issues in my memory. So I was kind of surprised that so much happens in such a concise amount of space, even with the extra pages involved. It, it still – I thought this was something that occurred over 48 pages, not over 36 yeah, and even though it is only 36 pages, it feels quite a bit like it is 48 pages. And I'm going to want to ask you, Brent, because I assume that you will have the answer or at least an answer to the question of why is this issue 36 pages? But I'd like to, to table that question until the end. Uh, you can surprise me with, with why this why this was done. I, I assume it's going to be have something to do with the substance of the episode so or the substance of the issue, rather. So that's why I'd like to, to wait till the end. So um, we might as well just jump straight into this one since there is going to be so much to do. And this issue picks up our main storyline, you know, after this digression that we had last issue, the digression that was Men of Good Fortune. And since it has been a while, I think that we should uh, refresh that this storyline paused on a pretty serious note, right? Brute and Glob were uh, imprisoned by Dream. Jed escaped into the night only to be caught by the Corinthian. And meanwhile, at the same time, Rose and Gilbert, who are on their way to go find Jed, they've been stranded in the middle of nowhere by a broken down car and they're going to have to spend the night at a suburban hotel. So this was a, a real serious business cliffhanger of an ending the last time that we saw this, uh, this, this plot. But now this issue begins with an establishing shot of that suburban hotel and it's at night. The sign says... Welcome cereal convention, and it is cereal like grain or breakfast cereal, but of course, we know that it's really cereal, as in cereal killer, because it is time for the cereal killer convention that we have been promised, that has been teased for us in issues leading up to this. And this is not going to go well for Rose and Gilbert, but we don't actually start with them. In fact, we start with the convention. We're not going to see Rose and Gilbert, in fact, till page five. We get a lot of buildup of the convention before we really get our, our Sandman story going. And this establishing shot also has a narration. It has a, a voiceover. And I think that this is worth just reading in, into the microphone here because it is quite an evocative passage it's one of these these neil bits of, it's one of these bits of beautiful game and prose that we get from time to time here these sort of descriptive passages 
It seemed like the late autumn wind blew them in that night, spinning and dizzying from the four corners of the world. It was a bitch wind, knife-sharp and cutting, and it blew bad and cold. And they came with it, scurrying and skittering, like yellow leaves and old newspapers, from a thousand places and from nowhere at all. They came in their suits and their t-shirts, carrying rucksacks and briefcases and suitcases and plastic bags, muttering and humming and silent as the night. It seemed like the bitter fall wind brought them there. Perhaps it did. And I just have to say that I, I love the mood that this this narration sets. This is like the opening to, a, I don't know, I guess a, a Mickey Spillane hard-boiled detective novel or something like that. Uh, when we get to the next page, there is still a narrative, which is interesting, but that narrative actually switches tenses. I don't know if you noticed this, Brad, but it switches to the present tense once we actually start meeting our serial killers. This is something that kind of jumped out to me, the, the switching tenses like that, and maybe because I've read this like 25 times in preparation for this episode, but it made me know notice something else about this narration, which is that twice in this opening voiceover narration here on the first page, we get the word seem, which means that these words are not actually coming from an omniscient narrator, but they're coming from someone inside the story with a subjective perspective. And we get, I'm going to say we're going to get this again at the end. Actually, when we get our closing narration, we're going to have the word seem there as well. I don't know that this is something that ever comes back or ever matters. And maybe I'm just nitpicking here about, about grammar and word choice. But I just wondered if there if this is a story that is being told to us, if this issue is being told to us by someone in this story, who is that, do you think? Who is the narrator of this issue? I mean, I had not noticed that, Glenn. So I think that's a, an interesting question. I mean, it could just be that it's a kind of a trick to play with us and um, make the most of the comic book format in which you've got not just the textual words, but also the art. And a lot of the panels are drawn as if you're sitting at a couch or a chair also in the lobby of the hotel or that you're also observing this conversation going on. Uh, on off to one side or the other, or even that you are in the panel. Um, there's some kind of clever placements of, you know, what I would often think of as, um, the, where the camera would be placed if this was a film or a television <laughs> show. Um, but it's, it's even this, uh, one of the, the first panel on the second page, once you're in the hotel lobby, you know, your the image is kind of drawn as if it's a little low behind the, the counter um, and you're kind of looking up. So it, it it could be that it's supposed to be in a way from the perspective of specific serial killer, or it could just be to make you extra nervous that you're surrounded by these people. There's almost a claustrophobia to, to the frame then. I, I love this reading of, of what's going on here. I, I had been wondering if maybe it's the perspective of the manager of the hotel, but I don't actually, who we're going to meet, but I don't actually think that that's going to turn out to be the case. But the way that you point out how the images support this, it does. I hadn't noticed this. This did not work on me, um, at least not on a conscious level while I was reading it. The, the, the grammar shifts, the tense shifts certainly did. But now that I'm I'm looking at these pages, as you pointed out, yeah, it's very clear that this is all from my perspective, right? As the reader, as the viewer, as the person looking at this, this is drawn in such a way that I feel like I'm in this hotel with these people. Not not that this is a movie that I'm watching. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of unaware that there's a fourth wall here. And I think that's actually brilliant That because the language then, this language reinforces that. It, this is almost like it's being narrated from my perspective. I'm the narrator of this, or you're the narrator, or the reader is the narrator of this. It's really uh, engrossing. It's really immersive. 
Yeah, and and all the convention related panels, they all just to me felt again very claustrophobic, um, very tight. There's a lot of people, and partially I think that's just evocative of going to a, a convention that is well attended. But part of that also I think causes you to to just the extra bit of concern or fear, like I can't. I can't make out where the door is because there are too many bodies between me and it. And then when you think about each of those bodies being a serial killer, uh, all the more disconcerting that like, how do you get out of this? It, 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 it kind of has it, it has the feeling of a nightmare unto itself where, you know, I want to scream, but I can't, or I want to run, you know, or I want to get out of the hotel, but I don't see the door. You know, we start with, the exterior shot of the hotel and we see people entering it. But by the time it's really kind of more from our perspective from the inside, I don't quite see where the door is looking back out. Right. And there are a lot of rooms that we're going to actually feel trapped in as we go through this issue. And in fact, that's going to become even a, a plot point as as we go. And, and and maybe we should go here. We should move past this first page now and and get into the serial killer convention. As, as you say, on page two, that, that starts immediately. We see inside this convention. It really is just like any other trade convention, as you say, Brent. It's, it's strangers and acquaintances meeting each other. Uh, they're engaging in small talk in the lobby or at the bar, waiting until the proceedings really get underway. And Gaiman uses this moment, this time here, this kind of pregame time here to, to show us a number of these serial killers. And while they are mostly just talking about how far they've traveled or what they like to eat because it's, you know, been all small talk with people you've just met, every conversation that we glimpse contains some kind of word about death. I won't read them all, but, you know, some examples are murder a steak, kill the lights, chocolate to die for. This is really on the nose, obviously, but it did make me laugh. I thought this was a pretty hilarious bit. It's funny, but it's very kind of dark humor based on, you know, knowing who these people are. So it is funny to take all of these like turns of phrase where if you or I said them, they would not have kind of the ominous tone or the humor that they do when um, these particular people make you know, the comments. So it, it both kind of grounds these people into reality and that there are other human beings, but it also sets them aside in kind of an other fashion where there's something a little disquieting. And I think the art does a nice job with this too. Even the close up of the mouth when it says, um, so that was when Harry killed the lights, I could have died. And the way that that person looks like they're about to bite their lip, it just, it's, it's kind of a punchable face. Yeah, it almost it's it's they all it's as if they all know that they're doing this, and actually maybe they do all know that they're doing this. Maybe this was the agreed upon secret code, uh, you know, because everyone's trying to hide their actual identities here, and maybe you need several levels and several layers of protection here. And one of them is that when you meet a new person, before everyone's got their name tags and their badges and so on, that uh, this is this is the clue that if someone fails to do this, you know, it's like the secret handshake or the secret code word or something. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's my my new head cannon. Well, while we're still getting into the, the convention while well, that's still getting going we are actually going to meet some some named people here even though there are a lot of people just milling about who whose names we're never really gonna gonna learn here during the the course of this issue but the first of these is mr nimrod who is the convention organizer he's short he's balding he's got a droopy mustache and he is wearing a short sleeved shirt with khakis and a tie uh, the tie is done very poorly he is straight out of an office comedy as that awkward maladjusted guy 
the second person that we're going to meet here is Tex. This is the hotel manager. Tex, probably not his real name, but I guess he's from Texas. And I guess we can tell that because he's got a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. Uh, he also has a pornographic poster up in his office and is also reading a pornographic magazine with those cowboy boots up on his desk. Uh, he is doing all of the things that uh, I would envision someone named Tex to be doing, really just kind of no matter where they are. But Nimrod and Tex have to have a conversation because there are some unexpected guests at the hotel, even though their deal was very specifically that the convention would have the hotel to itself, which, you know, you definitely would want if you're hosting a convention for murderers. Uh, But the deal is this. These guests were supposed to leave this morning, uh, but there is a police matter at their destination. And so they have been told to stay where they are. And the police have instructed Tex to accommodate them. And Tex certainly does not want any trouble with the law. He doesn't want trouble with the law any more than the serial killers do. And presumably, and I'm just making this up here, Brent, but presumably Tex has some kind of colorful backstory that he would rather people not know about, right? It sort of seems like he's equally afraid of the cops showing up at the hotel. You know, I don't know. He shot a man in Reno or something like that. We don't learn anything about it, but Tex is awesome is what I'm trying to say. I mean, he is, and it hadn't even occurred to me, Glenn, actually, to put him in until you pointed it out, I thought that those were two different guys. I thought that the 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 Texas cowboy who's got the tex and we see him only from the back wearing the cowboy hat inside um, hanging out among the serial killers was different from the manager who is back in his uh, office reading his bondage time magazine with his boots up. But I think they seem to be wearing the same shirt. So I – it could be that you're right, that it is the same person. Um, I assumed it was just kind of a comment on how there's a particular kind of style that uh, some people associated with um, kind of pop culture Texas would wear, where you see a bunch of people basically wearing the same outfit. Um, but either way, I'd be interested in what the personalities and backstory is of this person or these people, if there are two of them. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it just didn't occur to me that these might be two people, but I'm you know, checking it out now. And uh, at least in the original version, something I did not notice because all I was really noticing were the accoutrements and the color of the clothing, which is something that stands out in the original version as well. But actually, when we see him the first time with the Tex, or we see this character with Tex, uh, that guy's got dark hair. And then later, the guy we see seems to have blonde hair. So maybe they are two different people. I don't know that there's anything at stake in how we read this issue. <laughs> Uh, but I would I would love to know more about this if if, if uh, listeners have any any insights. This is not something Klinger has anything to say about. No, not at all. He does not comment necessarily on the wardrobe of any of the folks, other than I mean, he does mention some of the stuff that you've covered with Nimrod. Um, but it's it's definitely an interesting cast of characters um, here, and we also then we meet uh, another character, uh, Funland. Um, who is wearing what appears to be pretty much a Mickey Mouse hat, um, but the ears are a little different. They look like a, a wolf's ears. And I've got a little bit of backstory here that um, both Klinger provided as well as was provided by the uh, Sandman Companion by High Bender uh, from an interview with Neil. Originally, the character Funland was going to be named Disneyland. But when they got close to production, um, 
there was concern that perhaps Disney would not take a liking to that. Um, and so uh, to avoid a potential lawsuit, they went ahead and changed the character's name from Disneyland to Funland and also then changed the ears of the Mickey Mouse hat that he was wearing to shave them down a little bit um, to look more like wolf's ears, which as we get into the story, uh, in some ways, Neil reflected that it perhaps even worked better because of that. Yeah, I think it does. I was going to ask if you knew what was up with this weird thing that he's wearing. I wasn't even really sure, you know, to call it a hat or not. But for some reason, it didn't strike me that it's one of these Mickey Mouse hats, even though, you know, that's a thing I've certainly worn in my life and seen other people wearing. But I do think it works better here as wolf ears. I mean, wolf is going to be one of the central motifs of this story. We're not too far from from getting that uh, in, in a pretty, you know, uh, well-emphasized, pretty hardcore way. I it did not know that he had been originally conceived of as being called Disneyland, which I think is great. I'd like to think that Disney still knew about it, and this is what prompted them to buy Marvel, uh, just to, to get something on dc i i don't you know nothing to back that up <laughs> decades later we remember what you've done uh, warner brothers and so we're gonna buy out the rival comic book company um <laughs> and produce better films um the uh <laughs> I, I will mention that uh, in one of the early panels, we're introduced to Nimrod, um, in which he is standing next to Tex. Um, he's asking if anyone has seen the family man. Um, no one seems to know where the family man is. The family man was actually a character that uh, was a notorious British uh, serial killer um, who was dealt with by John Constantine over in the Hellblazer comics uh, earlier in the run. Um, uh, so for those who are reading the whole continuity of DC comics at this time, they will recognize the family man as, you know, a terrifying person who John Constantine has already dealt with. So they will not be surprised that he is unable to attend this convention. Was there anything supernatural or, or mystical, you know, numinous about the family man? Or is this really just a story where John Constantine just just deals with a serial killer, like a mundane serial killer? You know, I have never read the family man series and I really need to go back because it's a one bit of Hellblazer. It's not the only bit, but it's one of the bits of Hellblazer chronology that I missed. I've read stuff before and stuff after. I think he probably knowing the normal way that Hellblazer tends to splay out was probably uh, an ordinary terrifying man, but with being assisted by probably some supernatural awfulness. Um, but usually kind of the more awful people are just people unto themselves, even if they have other assistants or what they're doing is feeding something far more terrible. Uh, but Leslie Klinger notes in the annotated Sandman that, uh, Constantine obtained an invitation to this particular convention, but left it behind on the killer's corpse. Oh, that's amazing. So the, so the, the, the connection goes both ways. We actually get a hint about this story in the Hellblazer comic book. Yes. And, uh, uh in Highbender's interview with Neil Gaiman, uh, Neil talks about how he first came up with the idea for having a convention of serial killers when he was at the World Fantasy Convention um, in <laughs> London in October 1988. And at that time, the World Fantasy Convention was – there weren't really fans there. It was just writers and editors. Um, and he was sitting around the bar late one night and he was thinking about – what it was like to see a bunch of people gathering for a weekend that have one particular interest or thing in common, but might otherwise be, you know, a fairly diverse group from like all walks of, you know, particular society. And so then he began thinking about American serial killers and how their, um, well, of course, you know, 
typically more men than women, but still that they were reflective of many parts of American society. That was just him putting the idea together. And then for the next almost two years, he spent time researching everything he could research on serial killers at the time um, and hoping that no one would beat him to the punch of having a serial convention. Um, so this was all kind of set up well in advance. And uh, Neil was quite happy that no one managed to get out the idea of a serial kill killer convention prior to him going ahead and um, having this issue actually hit the newsstands. Well, I absolutely am in love with the idea that all of this was inspired by a convention of of, uh, of fantasy writers. And uh, I would actually really like to know if, uh, if any of these characters that we're going to meet have some kind of loose, you know, characteristics uh, drawn from from real people at that con. Not that that's the sort of thing that you say, if it's true, uh, but that might be something fun we could speculate about a little bit on the forum. But I think for now, we should probably go meet these, uh, these unwanted, unintended guests who are at the hotel. Of course, these are Rose and Gilbert. Uh, and by Gilbert, of course, we mean G.K. Chesterton. Rose is distraught. She's she's desperate, really, as you can imagine. Uh, she knows now that Jed has been horribly abused by Clarissa and Barnaby. She also knows that they are dead, that Clarissa and Barnaby are are dead, which settles a question that we had in the, the last issue, the last episode that we did on this storyline. Uh, but of course, she doesn't know what actually happened, right? Because she's not read issue 12 of this comic book. So for her, this is all just a crazy series of unexplained events. And at this point, what is not clear to me, and I'm not sure that it ever becomes clear to us, Brent, is whether Rose and Gilbert also actually know that Jed is missing right now. Do you think the police have told her that when she called I'm assuming that they did because I'm assuming her first question would be, where is my brother? Because I think she cares far more about him rather than, you know, what happened to her aunt and uncle, particularly once she uh, finds out that her aunt and uncle were keeping her brother locked in the basement. But there's no information that we're given as to what the police might have said to tell her that they were looking for him or where he could have gone. So... I think she's just feeling very frustrated at this point to be so close and then to have him kind of slip through your fingers and not know where to go next. And, and the action lines where she flops on Gilbert's bed, I think are great. And just, I think we've all kind of felt that not necessarily all of us because we're missing a sibling. Um, but the like complete, like just mental exhaustion of like, I don't know what to do next. I, I can't give up, but so let me just kind of collapse on this, you know, confidant's bed and just be like, I, I just need to talk and I don't know what to do. Yeah, and I love the visuals that go along with this this conversation that they're having here. We, you know, this the artists do a great job of showing us what, you know, what it's like to be in a hotel room, uh, this strange room that, and, and room that is strangely sanitized, strangely devoid of any real life when real life is actually happening to you in a very heavy way, right? Almost like, like an anvil, you know, an emotional anvil being dropped on you. The art really conveys a, a lot of that. I think that, you know, the action lines of flopping on the bed like that, which is a thing that we only ever do in hotels, right? I don't think people actually flop on their beds like this uh, at home because in the hotel, this is like, like one of the few pieces of furniture that there actually is where you can, you, where you can kind of be in this, in this constrained room. Uh, but we also get a lot of, uh, of silhouettes and, and shadows against this window. Uh, and I think that really is quite beautiful and, and quite evocative of, of the mood that they're, that they're in while they've gotten this news. 
Yeah, and particularly when she's by herself before she goes into Gilbert's room, as you mentioned, the her against the window silhouetted where there's the perfectly angled bed, which doesn't look that comfortable, but yet it's there. But she is alone and isolated, which is just in con- uh, interesting contrast to the panels we saw before it, you know, what's going on at the convention where you've got a bunch of people with a shared common interest who, again, it could be kind of claustrophobic to be that surrounded by people, but it also could be comforting to be surrounded by people who share something in common with you versus when we first cut to Rose and she's completely alone. And then the only other connection she has is, um, is Gilbert to talk to about this, but still in kind of a very kind of prepared space where there's, you know, what I assume were fake flowers, fake roses, but maybe not. We can talk about that at some point in the future, but it just kind of feels like the well thought out to a point kind of corporate hotel. Here is that one Monet print that people vaguely remember, but don't have very strong (laughs) emotions about. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't imagine being in this position as either of these characters, but I think I especially have a hard time imagining, I not have a hard time imagining, have a hard time with the feelings that I have when I imagine myself to be Gilbert in this situation, right? It'd be one thing to be the person who, uh, whose, whose family this has just happened to, but it's totally, it's something else completely to be the person who has to step into this role of of helper in this moment, but yet what kind of help can you actually offer? And so we are going to get the kind of help that uh, the only kind of help, perhaps, or maybe the most important kind of help that G.K. Chesterton can offer in a situation like this. So we're going to get a digression here because Rose needs some distracting. And really what I want to say is that we are going to get two digressions here, one of them from Gaiman and then one of them from me. So what Gilbert does here, what G.K. Chesterton does here is offer to tell her a story, but she says that she doesn't want to hear any more of his theological paradoxes. Uh, Frankly, she says, right now, she doesn't care if God exists or not, to which Gilbert replies that he doubts if God feels likewise. And this is uh, a real paraphrase of something that Chesterton himself wrote about. uh, It's about one of his sparring partners in the editorial newspapers of the day. It was H.G. Wells or George Bernard Shaw. Maybe I don't remember which one of them uh, it it was that he said this about. Uh, But it is a great line that precisely sums up Chesterton's emphasis on on, uh, on Christianity as a religion of love and charity and mercy, that, that God cares about you, whether or not you care about God. But I do want also to talk just a little bit about the concept of theological paradox as well. This is a cornerstone of Chesterton's theology. Uh, it was a part of what actually converted him from a, a sort of disinterested atheism to Christianity in the, the first place. And this is something that we find all through his writings on Christianity. They're like tens of thousands of pages of writing that he did on Christianity. Uh, it's on his writing. It's in his writing on, on morals and ethics, uh, even in much of his historical writings, his writings about uh, historical figures, some of them Christian saints, some of them not, some of them Cobbett, who we talked about uh, in the previous issue. But this really is is most famously found in his book called Orthodoxy, where chapter six is actually called The Paradoxes of Christianity. Uh, this book, by the way, also has a chapter called The Ethics of Elfland, which uh, Gene Wolfe has cribbed in his own essay called The Ethos of Elfland. Uh, someday, Brandon and I will actually look at that over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. 
Uh, but anyway, what he means here by paradox is that Christianity can be about one thing and also about its exact opposite at the same time, that it, it doesn't strive to find a balance between virtues like pride and humility or, or mercy and justice, but strives to contain both pride and humility and both mercy and justice at the, the same time. This is kind of his idea that Christianity can be two things at once where such a thing is not actually possible in, in the world as we experience it. Well, and uh, Leslie Klinger notes in The Annotated Sandman that G.K. Chesterton, a quote attributed to him, although he doesn't actually give us the exact quote, is something uh, something along the lines of, a paradox is truth standing on its head to get your attention, um, is the way that Chesterton uh, perhaps uh, referred to paradoxes when thinking about those concepts. So, again – to use them in the way that you might use a story in order to grab attention, which kind of brings us to the story that then Gilbert does share um, when he says, no, no, I won't give you one of those paradoxes, but here's a story I want you to hear about. And it's <laughs> very important given what's going on in the hotel, which uh, it's not altogether clear that Gilbert at this point understands what's going on in this hotel. Uh, I, later in a panel, um, he very much, I think, understands, but I'm not sure he understands right now. No, I don't think he does right now. Uh, we, we can we can dissect those panels uh, later and, and see if we can really uh, read what's happening in him emotionally and psychologically. But I don't think he does know at this moment, which is interesting then that he, he dwells on this story, not dwells on, but, but selects this story, right? And this is going to be the story of Little Red Riding Hood. But it is not the version that we all learned as children. It is an older version. And he gives a little history of the story. He explains that uh, the Red Hood was the invention of Charles Perrault, who uh, collected fairy tales in 18th century France. Uh, in America, probably really in the whole Anglophone world, we don't tend to know Charles Perrault that much, but he's sort of the French equivalent of the Grimm Brothers and Hans Christian Andersen. Perrault just has not supplied enough Disney movies the way that the Grimm Brothers and Hans Christian Andersen have, so has not sort of permeated us. I don't know. This is another. Maybe this is another way of trying not to get sued by Disney, maybe, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I will say that this is also another connection with Gene Wolfe, who also draws on Perrault a lot. Uh, but I do want to say that Gaiman is not completely correct here, because I went, I, I have Charles Perrault, I have this both in English and in French, which is you know something I have because of uh, of how much uh, how frequently he comes up on Gene Wolfe, and so I looked at this in both languages, and I will say that I think the hood is only an English language tradition because the world that the word that Perrault uses here is uh, chaperone, which I would translate as bonnet and not a hood, uh, but that's just me being uh, nitpicky because I like to be nitpicky, and if uh, if being nitpicky is not what we're doing here, then I don't know <laughs> I don't know what we are. Uh, but what really matters here is the way that Gaiman presents this. Uh, Gilbert says that he is going to tell Rose not just an older version, but an original version. And this use of the plural here, it is an original version. So there is at least one other original version. This strikes me as kind of a weird idea, right? This idea that stories can have multiple original versions. And original, by the way, is the same word that Dream used in the last issue when he said that all stories will eventually revert to their original forms. And so thinking about right the metaphysics of stories here in this speculative universe, are we to understand that King Lear also has more than one original form, that there's the original version that Shakespeare wrote, but then maybe other forms too, maybe other uh, original versions, other stories that are equally original in some sense? And you know, if, if that's true, how does that work 
right? And and this is important, of course, right? The metaphysics of stories, because they are within dreams' purview. We're going to be dealing with the metaphysics of stories for a, a long time here. But I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about this. Well, then it might connect, too, to the idea that we see a couple times in the Sandman story where Neil Gaiman makes the comment, or a character does, but usually it's the narrator's voice, about how something can be true even if it didn't actually happen, even if it's not fact. But we also see a lot of playing with the idea that and we'll see in later storylines, you have, you know, multiple kind of mythological or cosmological understandings of what the world and the universe is or pantheons of gods, and they can simultaneously exist and all be equally kind of valid. So the idea that there, there can be many true versions or many original versions, and it's not important to get into an argument as to what is, quote, the one original or one true, but rather all of these things can be equally kind of valid. So it, 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 it allows for a wider, I think, cosmology while also kind of telling the audience, don't worry about fighting for like, what is the kind of scientifically, you know, two plus two equals four thing that's going on here. Just understand that math is math. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I, I, something that I was thinking of, something I was kind of trying to envision about how this works, right, is that I, I guess we're supposed to understand, right, that stories uh, they are, it's not just that they're within dreams purview, but that in fact, they come into existence they really do originate they really do generate they really do generate in dreams realm and so uh, that's where they start so then by the time they get to us here in this other realm of existence they have moved they've moved location or something like that and i was just wondering then or thinking kind of envisioning that what those stories do is not actually leave dreams realm and come to ours but perhaps make copies of themselves or and send copies into other realms and that maybe each time it's copied or it looks a little bit different and so there can be multiple versions that are the original version in our realm and that what gilbert means here or what gaiman means here maybe we should say is uh, a version that originated from the dreaming, and that's sort of the pure form of it, unchanged by humans. Because, of course, we've taken all of these stories and, and changed them and altered them in our own in our own ways. But that this is a version untouched by by humans. Uh, that could be it, Glenn. But I think also the way I've always conceived the dreaming is more that the dreaming is kind of co-located with. The reality that you and I would consider in humans. Because if we think about um, back in Preludes and Nocturnes, when Dream first frees himself and he needs nourishment, he finds the dream of a mortal who has a big banquet and takes food from that. So it could be that the origin of the story, it may have first kind of manifested in a way that was, you know, visual or otherwise. Um, and perhaps, you know, the wolf first came into existence, so to speak, in the dreaming, but it was powered and fueled by the sleeping, or in some cases we've seen even the kind of the waking dreaming of a human. And so I think that those things are kind of linked. And I think that goes back also to the horrible, the, the, the horrible effects that we saw when dream was cut off from the dreaming and what it, how it played out for 
our world. It wasn't that there was something not interfacing from another world anymore. It was also that like characters were trapped and they either were sleeping the whole time or they weren't asleep or so there's, 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 there's an overlapping there, I think. And it's kind of, it reminds me of in a cosmological sense, the idea that for fans of stranger things might have of the upside down where it's kind of an inverse of our reality, but it's not, it exists kind of in an overlapping way where things are, you know, geographically kind of represented, have an opposite. Um, or for fans of Dungeons and Dragons cosmology, it's the idea of the, the shadow fell, which kind of lays just in the other side. And the way that I think we'll increasingly see Neil dealing with not so much the dreaming, but when we get into, and we can talk about this more when we get to it, but when we see how he encapsulates the way that the fairlands that fairy is connected to reality again there there are points that seem to be shared between these and so it's not a one for one but it's there's a lot of overlap in key places so i'm wondering if that that's what we have going on here where it could be that the wolf first came into existence in the dreaming you're right and in that way the true essence of the wolf or red riding hood with or without red and with or without a hood, but the girl who has to, you know, deal with the wolf one way or the other, um, get eaten or not that the dreaming is the pure kind of platonic place where that character first came into existence, but they only were able to come in existence because of the play of so many people's minds kind of thinking about what would a wolf look like? What does a girl look like? What are the kinds of peril that could affect that? And all of those permutations are why we have multiple kind of original versions of the story is because all of those are true. So my having a dream in which there is a girl being chased by a wolf and she escapes is not any less or more valid than my having a dream the next night or you having a dream simultaneously about a girl who gets eaten by the wolf or a girl who turns on the wolf and is actually something far more terrible, perhaps even. Well, I like that explanation way better than, than mine. I think that that is, is, has got to be right, or at least as close to right as we're going to get with the information that we've got, you know, in the, the 14 issues that we've read so far. And, and even while you were explaining this, Brent, I was, you know, thinking ahead to the, you know, some of the things that we do know about. And we are going to revisit this idea, well, many times, but I'm thinking specifically that we're going to see some more specifics about the relationship between the stories of people's dreams, of the dreams of individual humans, and how those exist exist in dreams realm, how those exist in the dreaming that I think uh, suggests that what my explanation was can't really work. So that, yeah, that, that's excellent. All right. At this point, I will, I will actually stop interrupting our narrative now and we can finally get to the story that Gilbert tells. I think we have spent 20 minutes not talking about what's actually happening on the page, but now we can get to it. And of course, right, people know the basic contours of Little Red Riding Hood. There's a little girl. Her grandmother is eaten by a wolf. The wolf pretends to be her grandmother, but it's just a trick so that the wolf can eat the little girl. Uh, and the most memorable part of the story is the bit where the little girl is skeptical about the fact that the wolf is really her grandmother as she notices that there is something inhuman about this body. Uh, long arms, long legs, big ears, big eyes, big teeth, and, and so on. But the wolf always has an answer, right? The better to see you with, and, and so on. Uh, and all of that stuff that we all know famously from our own childhoods, all of that stuff is in the Perot version of the, the story, and it is here as well. But what is new here, what, what Gaiman has 
added are some particularly gruesome details, details that are in keeping here with the idea of a serial killer convention for sure. For one thing, the wolf does not gobble up the grandmother. Uh, What he does is pour her blood into a bottle and slice her flesh onto a plate with a knife. And then he leaves this out as a snack for Little Red Riding Hood when she arrives. So there's some cannibalism in this version. I mean, ignorant cannibalism. She doesn't know she's eating her grandmother, uh, but there it is. Uh, There is also something uh, going on here with uh, allusion to Christ, right? This is my body and this is my blood. Eat of my body and drink of my blood. Uh, That's going to come up. That's going to come back later in this issue as well. But even more extensive is the treatment of clothing and sexuality in this story. Here in Gaiman's version, in in G.K. Chesterton's version, Gilbert's version, the wolf puts on the grandmother's night clothes as part of his ruse. And then when Little Red Riding Hood arrives, he he makes her strip down completely before coming into bed with him. Uh, But the instructions are way more specific and and also much more gradual than that, right? As the the wolf tells her to remove one article of clothing at a time each time she protests, but then the wolf says, you won't need it anymore, right? You won't need that article of clothing. You won't need this article of clothing. And every time she complies, there's almost a kind of ritual that's going on here while he's making her, while the wolf is making her undress before he... uh, does horrible things to her, I is what we'll say. Um, and there's one other detail that is going to, to, to matter as we go on, and that is that the grandmother has a cat. Uh, it's a talking cat, and it calls Little Red Riding Hood a slut for for, for eating, eating her grandmother, even though she doesn't know that that's actually happening. And I think we really need to point out, especially to people who aren't reading along with us as we go, that all of this happens, all of this dense and really rich narrative happens over just two pages. And it is masterful two pages of storytelling. Both the prose and the visual language that accompany this are just as masterful as as you can get. I mean, this is just excellent stuff. And it's terrifying. It, It makes you very deeply concerned for Red Riding Hood in a way that I think lesser prose and lesser art wouldn't have had this effect on us as much because we're familiar with the story. And so like, okay, there's a wolf and there's a girl and she'll probably get eaten. Like not great things going to happen here, but just the way that these two pages masterfully lay out the story in a way that's really makes you uncomfortable as a reader to read it, partially because it's got these cannibalisms and the more kind of psychosexual aspects of the destruction of the clothes. And then the panel where she is naked in front of the fire, watching her clothes burn before getting into the bed with the wolf. Although that panel is kind of funny looking, but still it's, it, it adds to kind of the disquiet I felt as a reader, um, which is kind of how I felt a lot of this issue. So I thought that it was a very kind of effective use of that. The the imagery here links so well with the imagery that we're going to get when we start seeing some of these serial killers in action, which is going to be not too far in the in the future of this issue here. But it is gruesome and it is terrifying and, and uncomfortable. I mean, there is so much in this issue that is uncomfortable. And that is true also even here with this this fairy tale, which, of course, this is a big thing for Gaiman. This is a big part of his whole corpus, his whole oeuvre is to take well, kind of to de-Disneyfy, I guess, all the fairy tales, right? I didn't know how much we were going to be talking about Disney in this uh, in this episode. I guess I should have should have known that. Uh, but it's great to see that here. This is almost kind of I don't know, leading with a with a right hook here. But this is a, a motif that we're going to return to again and again, not just in the Sandman, but but through all of Gaiman's work. Well, 
now that the story's been told, we are back to the serial killer convention, and we're going to get to know some of our serial killers a little bit better. And let's start with Mr. Nimrod, the convention organizer. Nimrod, of course, this is a name that is a biblical reference. Nimrod was a great grandson of Noah, uh, Noah uh, from the, you know the famous Ark. He Nimrod is famous for being a great hunter, which is really all we get about him in the Bible. Uh, Gaiman quotes Genesis here when he has Nimrod uh, think of himself as a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, this is, as I, I think I just pointed out, this is actually the second bit of religious uh, language or illusion here. We are going to get more in this issue, a lot more, in fact. Uh, and and of course, Gilbert's actually himself already been talking about theology. But here we see Nimrod being nervous about addressing the attendees as he's opening up the convention. But we also get a cut scene of him in his persona as a mighty hunter, uh, a mighty hunter of women. And we see him crouched over a naked body in a pool of blood holding a knife in his hand. And we're, we're going to get these sorts of cut scenes for, for many of these serial killers that we're going to meet. We're going to see them at the convention in that kind of a, I say cut scene, but you know, maybe it's flashback is the better way to think of, of it, of, of them in action doing their actual serial killing bit. And we've already met Nimrod's lieutenant, I guess is the, what I'll say. This is this is Funland, right? Who is wearing this uh, uh, Mickey Wolf hat, I guess, or Wiki Wolf, maybe we'll call it that. I don't know. Uh, hat. Uh, he is as big as Nimrod is small and even has, in fact, the same mustache, which is an interesting choice, I think. Funland's serial killing fetish is little kids. Uh, it might especially be little girls. Maybe that's not clear, but he hunts these little kids at some sort of amusement park, though I guess we know now that it was it's, it's really meant to be Disneyland. And Funland presents himself as affable and maybe presents himself as dim-wittedly sincere and affable, but he is wearing a shirt with a wolf on it, and he's got these wolf ears, and right, we have seen a wolf in this story already. And when Nimrod shortens his name to Fun rather than Funland, he gets really upset about it, but but only internally. Uh, we just get a panel that shows us what his face, uh, it gives us a facial expression of what he's actually feeling rather than the face that he's actually presenting to Nimrod in that moment, which I think is is a, a brilliant choice here. Uh, this is, uh, is, is not the panel I'm going to select as my favorite panel, but it is certainly one of my favorite panels in this issue. Yeah, it's a great one. If he wasn't already kind of a creepy figure, you definitely know that like something about this man might snap at any minute and particularly given his size compared to other characters it's it makes him all the more kind of terrifying um as it's always kind of terrifying to see a full-grown adult who has a very kind of childlike demeanor at least on the outside it's always just like is there something very adult beneath that level though yeah, childlike is right. I, I don't know where, you know, dim-wittedly affable or whatever was what I came up with when childlike is clearly uh, what's happening here. He's just got this this happy kind of goofy, carefree smile on his face. And that's, uh, you know, clearly a persona. This is someone he's trying to be in the world. And we are going to learn a little bit more about uh, about the trauma in his past that has has uh, started him down the road to being a, a serial killer, started him down the road to being someone who murders little kids. And, and that's going to that's going to make sense with what we we see here uh when we as we're meeting him early in the story and at this point they've figured out that the family man is not going to come um and so they're talking about how they can get someone to give the keynote you know at a convention the keynote 
being a very important thing to say, like, this is the, you know, great speech we're going to get from someone to kind of bring it all together, despite, you know, the myriad panels, et cetera. And then we get the Corinthian who shows up very much in the kind of the hero pose with his hands on his hips. And I mean, it's a DC comic. You could throw a cape on him and a big S on him <laughs> and it, it wouldn't look completely out of um, step with things. But we, of course, have met the Corinthian a few times before, uh, and we have some sense as to what are behind those glasses and and uh, so it, it's all – it's, again, kind of very kind of terrifying to see him so happy. You get the sense you never want to see the Corinthian happy. No, you know, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the the pose that he's in here. But now that you pointed out one, I mean, that's absolutely right. But I also then didn't notice what he's wearing, but he's dressed all in white, right? Absolutely. Everything about this is designed to to present him as the hero here. Because, of course, in this moment, from the perspective of Nimrod and Funland, the Corinthian is the hero because he, he will step in and fill the shoes of the family man and uh, and give this keynote address. He has saved the convention. Uh, he is and, and he's going to get the acclaim of his peers and so on that he is he is heroic to these people and we're going to find out a lot more about that as we go in fact well as we're going through and meeting some of our characters let's meet a couple more at the bar we're going to meet flay by night and the boogeyman flay by night is a a middle-aged doctor He's, he's a famous doctor he's treated presidents he's pioneered radical new operations he's saved many lives and he's also taken many lives because he also likes to wear leather neckties that he makes himself from human skin, from people he's flayed. Uh, We don't learn much about the boogeyman here, other than that he's nervous and he likes a magazine called Chased, which I I don't know, you can probably find on the same rack you find Bondage Time, which we saw uh, the hotel manager who maybe texts reading earlier. And the boogeyman also doesn't seem quite to understand the etiquette or the the social conventions here. There's going to be more on that later. And that's kind of a tip-off to... uh those of us who aren't familiar with the the boogeyman or the bogeyman, um, that perhaps he just doesn't quite fit in. And again, for those who have been reading the multitude of DC comics at this time, they saw that the bogeyman himself was killed back in 1985 uh, in a Swamp Thing comic written by Alan Moore that cover dated from January uh, 1986, uh, number 44. So um, I had not read that particular issue, I don't think, or if I had, I certainly had completely forgotten about it. Um, so I was just aware that he didn't seem to quite fit in. But again, we, we see Neil doing a lot of great work, and there's no evidence that it's that any of this is, you know, editorially required. But to weave bits of his stories into the fabric of DC continuity, even if it's just what later will become the Vertigo imprint DC continuity of, you know, Swamp Thing and John Constantine's Hellblazer, etc. But I think that's clever. Also, it's, it's always fun when you have an excuse to steal an Alan Moore character, I guess. So good job finding another Alan Moore character to take. I'm really interested in how many serial killers there are in DC Comics, Uh, but this was a big part of what was going on in, I think, the American zeitgeist, and maybe especially in the way that America was perceived by people who are not American, as if we're talking about uh, Alan Moore and uh, the writers of, of Hellblazer as well. And in fact, that's kind of something of a motif here, actually, in this story, is the way that serial killers are something of an American icon right uh, that they are they're a, an important bit of americana in you know the the 
1970s and 1980s at, at, at the very least. And in fact, before we move on, we should talk about the title page that we have we have come across at this point, even though it was a very long teaser to get up to this title page. This title page is a series of black and white headshots of famous serial killers. And then over this is an American flag. Uh, the American flag looks like it's just been painted over these images. Some of the red is even dripping down towards the bottom. Of course, that also then looks like blood. And I don't really recognize any of these people, but I expect that Klinger has helped us out here in the end salmon and you can point out at least a few of them but i just in a big picture sense was kind of shocked at how many there could be that there are this many famous serial killers that that this could supply the the the, the title page here all of the, the sort of collage of serial killer headshots well and unfortunately he doesn't comment on that at all but i i think that some of them look like – I feel like I, I see like John Wayne Gacy in there and some other similar folks. And some of them also look like it looks like we have you know perhaps a version of Freddy from the Friday the 13th series in the bottom left panel. So I, I think it's kind of a collage of – you know faces of actual serial killers that Mike Jurgenberg has given us, but also the idea of serial killers, which kind of brings us back to, to the wolf in some ways and the many original stories of what a, the wolf could be. Um, we're here, we've got a big collage of actual serial killers mixed with purely fictional ones, perhaps, or just faces that may look like that. Um, and I wish I knew who all the faces were. I would love to have a little breakout with like little numbers telling me like who this is supposed to be and who that's supposed to be. How many of them are ones that are just purely from DC continuity versus the real world versus, you know, the uncle of someone who just, you know, they decided had a nice looking <laughs> face. Like it almost looks like that could be maybe even Mark Hamill at one point, kind of in the middle by uh, above <laughs> yeah. the second L. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, I see it. I see it. It looks very Mark Hamill uh, from Empire Strikes Back. Like he's just gotten out of that, uh, that healing fluid uh, after getting rescued from the, the Tauntaun. <laughs> But Leslie Klinger does uh, include a, a bit from Neil that introduced the whole script for this, which I think is worth talking about here, or at least mentioning briefly, um, in which Neil said, quote, I want to do a story about serial killers. In Sandman 11, I had the Corinthian, the escaped nightmare who is inspiration to serial killers, describe himself as the American dream. And there is a way in which serial, serial killing, a very American phenomenon, is the flip side of the American dream. In its current form... It's a late 20th century American cultural phenomenon, and serial killers come from every race and class in America. He goes on to then say in, in the script note, the current storyline, The Doll's House, fogged and blurry though it is thematically, due to, I'm afraid, to my own lack of skill and experience, and I'm doing my best, is intended to be about women, just as a reminder, and about men's attitudes to women, about the houses and walls that people build around themselves and each other for protection or for imprisonment or both, and about tearing down of those walls. It's also dark fantasy, horror-edged as DC's marketing department described it, an image I like, the black velvet robes of dark fantasy edged with jagged razor blades, perhaps rusty, Perhaps, but still sharp enough to slice an eyeball to open a vein. 
and we've already shown in Sandman, uh, is part of a number of different areas of the fantasy horror theme park. We visited Old Occult World back in issue one, Ye Original Inferno in number four. We've visited a place in number six, which is the diner, that they didn't have a name for before we went there, and it's not a place I'd want to return in a hurry. And this is going to be worse. It's going to to work in order to work, it has to be worse. In number six, we showed what it was like for the victims. Dr. D was the other. He wasn't to be sympathized with or understood, um, which as an aside, uh, I think is interesting given kind of some of our reading of that, where we felt like there was some work to make him a little bit of understandable and sympathized, but yeah, absolutely. Um, but in number 14, again, it goes on to say, we're going to meet a bunch of human monsters that make D look innocent. And we're going, if I can manage it, to make them real human beings. I want to explore human evil, specifically that aspect of human evil we term the serial killer, as well as I can from my perspective. Not glorifying it, not romanticizing it, but not making it any easier on the reader that it than it really is. I suppose this is my equivalent of something like Thomas Harris's books, Red Dragon and the Silence of the Lambs, or Dr. Elliot Layton's non-fictional study, Hunting Humans. So again, that, I think that's a really nice job that Neil does in the front of the script trying to lay out, here is kind of the story we need to try to accomplish here, but also here's where it kind of fits in the meta narrative, particularly about structures and women and the relationship between men kind of locking women in cages or putting them in boxes or doing terrible, unspeakable things to them. Some of which we see in flashbacks, some of which we don't, um, that this comic kind of gives us. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack in this, this statement, which is phenomenal to have by the way, but while you were describing or reading the way that, that Gaiman thinks of serial killers here, it really kind of occurred to me that serial killers are just not something that really exist for me in my conception of the real world that in fact it doesn't really surprise me that the collage here in the title page has real people like john wayne gacy and then also uh fictional characters from slasher films because i kind of just think of serial killers as being something that exists in slasher films and that slasher films have no relationship with reality but there certainly was a moment and in fact we lived in the moment right mm -hmm. we just have forgotten it when serial killers really had captured a disproportionate amount of the public consciousness. It was a thing people were viscerally afraid of. In fact, serial killers are the reason that we weren't allowed to, you know, uh, walk to each other's house, uh, you know, alone, you know, at age age eight or 10 or something like that. Uh, why our parents had to inspect the, the Halloween candy and so on, that there was this real fear that there were people who were preying on individual children, but other types of people as well. And, and, it, you know, to do them harm, not just to kill them, but to torment, to, to torture them, to brutalize them in the process of killing them, that this is something that really terrorized parents in, I think, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but that I also feel like we have forgotten about this. This is not something that I'm afraid of in the world for myself or for, for anyone else, but I wonder if this hasn't just been replaced for us because the types of people maybe who go on to become serial killers or did in the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe some of that is still going on, I suppose. But that what they've gone on to do now actually is like shoot, shoot people in public. It's public gun violence. It's that 
for this story to be written now, it wouldn't be a serial killer convention. It would be a convention of, of school shooters or something like that to kind of try to understand how this might have emotionally resonated or psychologically anyway, resonated with an audience in 1989 versus how it does with for us now. Yeah, I think, Glenn, that there's something to that. Or if we're talking about, you know, the, the serial killer who is kind of going about their direct pathological approach to dealing with one victim at a time, the headline would now read something about, you know, someone lured through a connection they make on the internet to a location. So we don't have the instance of worrying about like roving vans of serial killers that are driving around picking up little boys and girls because they're offering them candy out the back. Instead, we have the don't talk to strangers online or, you know, be careful about giving personal information. You know, if you're on, you know, chat playing Halo, don't tell people where you live. Any any kind of kind of stories that we kind of tell that are somewhat based in truth that, you know, there were serial killers and there are terrible people who to do things to individuals as well as, you know, the mass shootings that, that you mentioned. And, the, you know, these are our, our own real world monsters, but also the function of telling stories about monsters like the wolf and the little red riding hood. There are some aspects of that story, particularly to warn women about strange men that come across as kind of patriarchal in the wrong way, but there are also good lessons in there in which like men can some men in particular, many men in particular actually can be a terrible thing for women to have to face, particularly if they're alone. So to arm them with the fairy tale of don't tell the wolf where you're going if you encounter it out on the street and it asks questions and you don't recognize it. Because in the story that we were given, she tells the wolf, I'm going to grandmother's. And then the wolf runs ahead to grandmother's first and grandmother dies and so and the girl is in peril, peril because she tells the wolf a bit of what we would call personally identifiable information in terms of names and addresses and locations. And just like you, this is what you don't do with strangers. Well, and this is this is the precise function of these stories as Charles Perrault rewrote them as he collected them in early modern France as well. All of these stories have a moral at the end, a, a lesson at the end. It's it's an addendum to the story that's actually written in verse. It's a little poem. It's kind of a little song you could sing to yourself that tells you what was the point of the story that you've just read or, or heard read to you by someone in your home, You're like your parent, for example. And that is the lesson of Little Red Riding Hood. This is what Charles Perrault says this story is about. This is a story to instruct uh, girls, to instruct young women about how dangerous men can be and to illustrate different types of men and how you should deal with them, what sorts of things you should do to keep yourself safe. And, you know, this is not really something I think as a kid that occurred to me that these stories were about, but clearly, you know, Gaiman has thought very much about about the purpose of that particular story, but, but stories in general and the way that he is, is weaving them, weaving them in here, because we are going to see the lesson of that story, the lesson of little red riding hood here in the hotel, in the real world here of, uh, of the story we're reading and not just in the, the world of Gilbert's tale. 
Well, all right. I think we should get back to the narrative that is happening here because it is time for our stories to uh, to intersect. Actually, I guess collide might be a better term for what is going to happen here. We've been anticipating this for several issues now. In fact, it has all taken a little bit longer to come together than I expected or remembered it it happening. But I have to say that I love the way that Gaiman brings these two stories together. Uh, we are with Rose. We're with Gilbert in the hotel elevator, which they are taking down from their rooms so that they can go for a little walk in the, the parking lot, uh, stretch their legs, get some fresh air, uh, think about things with a new perspective. But we see on another floor that the Corinthian and Flay by Night are waiting for this very same elevator. There is uh, some dramatic uh, tension here, some suspense as we wait for them to get in the elevator together. And the Corinthian and Flay by Night, they have some important business because they know what you have now told us, Brent, which is that the boogeyman is not really the boogeyman. He's an imposter. He's someone who has infiltrated this serial killer convention and, you know, therefore must be dealt with. But as the elevator opens and they get on with Rose and Gilbert, Gilbert gets frazzled, uh, panicked might even be the way to, to read the, the visual language here of these panels. He uses his hat to hide his face from the killers. And then as the killers get off the elevator, Gilbert is shaking and he even slumps against the wall. And Rose has to ask if he's okay. And from here, we cut to the, the parking lot where they are now taking their walk. And Gilbert tries to explain why he panicked in the elevator. And he, he says that he's afraid of things. I, I'm quoting here. He says, things, Memories, people, dreams, I do not know, or at least I cannot say. So that's cryptic. But then he sees a bird in the sky. He takes a notepad from his pocket and he writes down a name on this notepad and he gives the the piece of paper to Rose. And, And here's what he says as he does this. I have written a name on this paper, Rose. Read it to yourself. Do not say it aloud. If things get bad, call the name, Rose Walker. Call him. And may God have mercy on us all. And with that, he just walks off uh, alone. And look, we, we we don't need to hide what's coming at the end of this issue. The name on the paper, it's Morpheus. And eventually, we are going to find out how and in what way Gilbert is connected to all of this, though that is not going to happen in this issue. And I remember reading this for the first time and being really excited to find out, right? Why, why, how does Gilbert know about Morpheus? How does Gilbert know about Dream? Why does he, I, I think clearly what's happened here, right? Why does he recognize the Corinthian? And when we learn the answer to those questions as as well, I, th- I think we are going to want to come back to this business about, I do not know, or at least I cannot say. This is a really important moment here in the development of our story. It is. And uh, as readers might have picked up on, and the script confirms, according to the annotated Sandman, the uh, bird flying in the sky that Gilbert does see is Matthew's uh, is Matthew, which is dreams Raven who we've seen before. So um, Gilbert sees that dream is aware that they are there and dream uh, is keeping them eyes and ears on what is going on. So um, I think that that also gives Gilbert the um, sense that if Rose were to do what she had done ends up doing later with that piece of paper, uh, that the message would be received. Cause I remember reading this the first time and thinking uh, when we see later that Gilbert leaves, just feeling like, how could you, she, she, you're leaving in her hotel with serial killers. What, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, that is that's not being a good friend. So far, Gilbert's been a pretty good friend, but that's that is not, not a good a, friend. Move. You you armed her with a sheet of paper, like what? But 
upon later readings when I saw the bird and kind of guessed what it might have meant. And then, um, then when I got the confirmation from the annotated Sandman that the script explicitly calls out that it should be, uh, you know, understood to be Matthew, uh, Dreams Raven, that it makes more sense that Gilbert has that level of confidence that in Dream's ability, um, to act as quickly as Dream does later have to be called on to act. I have two things I want to say about this, but the first thing I want to say, this is a fresh thought that's happening just now as we're talking about this bird being Matthew, and I just happen to have the page open and I'm looking at it. The first panel on this page is a bird's eye view of the parking lot. It is from Matthew's perspective. Is Matthew the Raven the narrator of this issue? Is he the person who's doing the voiceover? <laughs> uh, we don't. I didn't ever intend for us to come back to that 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 silly question that I opened with, but uh, that might actually be my new headcanon that uh, that at least some of this is from Matthew's perspective. But the thing I really uh, I'm interested in, the thing that I think really matters here, is that of course we know that Matthew is here to be keeping an eye on Rose because Rose is a dream vortex. But what does Gilbert know about any of this right now? We have no idea what Gilbert thinks when he sees this bird, right? I think we can probably assume that he recognizes that, you know, if he's recognized the Corinthian and knows about Morpheus, that he probably does know that this is Dream's bird, Dream's raven. But what does he think that means? We have no idea what's going on in Gilbert's head right now. We, We don't know. Although from the evidence we have so far, we get the understanding that he believes in a benevolent god of some kind. And he is looking towards the heavens when he's making these comments. And so I think he's operating on faith at this point. I think that that's what our GK Chesterton character is doing is that this is an act of faith that he feels he can arm her with merely words and not with a weapon of some kind uh, before he ends up leaving her. Right. And of course, for a person of, of faith, and certainly for G.K. Chesterton, words are a type of, of weapon. Words are, are numinous. And that, you know, certainly is something that is at the core of the, the metaphysics of the, the Sandman, for sure. Speaking of faith, then we cut back to the convention and we have just one beautiful, funny panel of uh, people talking about religion in serial killer. And we've got a guy who thinks he is God and he is there to cause suffering. And we have someone else who also causes suffering, but, you know, says, I, that is not God. I do not endorse any of this, but I use a hammer to free people. And it's, it's, it's. It's very, it's dark humor, but it's very funny. Yeah, this guy identifies as a born-again Christian, and he says that he he uses his hammer to uh, wash them in the blood of the lamb. Uh, and uh, the other guy, the guy who claims that he's God, this guy looks a lot like Rasputin. And he does have an interesting theology here, right? In that he thinks that killing people is a mercy because he's releasing them from the sufferings of this imperfect world. Uh, he's not the you know only person, he's not the first person to think that this world that we live in is actually hell, and that we're all trapped here, trapped here that this world is not actually God's creation because God wouldn't do that to us. Uh, I'm not sure all those people were serial killers or that Rasputin had those feelings either. Well, he he also looks a lot like uh, Charlie Manson um, with the... Uh, oh, yeah. So it's kind of a Charlie Manson meets Rasputin kind of... But I love that the born-again Christian looks a lot like just a, a televangelist. Um <laughs> 
And yes, he absolutely. I, I, I want to know what the third person on the panel thinks about this, but we we never find that out. No, he does say that you know God tells him to kill people, but like that's it. This is someone who you know he's got a bow tie. He actually looks maybe a little bit like Bill Nye, <laughs> not to cast aspersions <laughs> on Bill Nye, who I'm sure is a very fine person. Uh, you know, don't Bill Nye, us, the please. murder guy. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I would. I would probably watch that TV show, actually. (laughs) Maybe not something that I want going out on the air. But if Dexter had stayed good, maybe we would have gotten the Bill Nye the Murder Guy instead of. Uh, where we did end up yeah right recurring uh you know sort of yeah right he could have been one of the antagonists for a later uh un unaired season of dexter i would certainly read that that, that dexter fan fiction so if people want to send that in uh i will be i will be certainly be an audience for that well we are really here back at the convention because the the boogeyman or really right the pretend boogeyman is in the audience for this panel and the corinthian asks him to to come with him and now we learn that this guy is philip sits he's the editor of chaste magazine we see some copies of that magazine it's got swastikas on it there's been a lot of neo-nazis in this story as well which i guess maybe is also something that was sort of looming large in the public consciousness here uh in the 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 late 1980s uh early 1990s that i've just kind of forgotten about but presumably this guy infiltrated this convention to write an article about it but we never really find out because the corinthian nimrod and flay by night take him to some remote area nearby and they take turns. That's that's how the Corinthian puts it. And the Corinthian also makes a speech here uh, that's very important. It's a speech about what serial killers are. He says, it isn't the sex, isn't the power, isn't the cruelty. We are soldiers of darkness, Philip, gladiators, warriors, and gods. And I think that this, right, this is the true nightmare of the Corinthian. It's not that he has teeth in his eye sockets. It's not that he kills little kids or adolescents. It's that he inspires an army of darkness, that he, as a numinous creature, uh, you know, escaped from the dreaming, walking our realm, that he has created this culture of serial killers. That's the thing that really makes him uh, a nightmare here. Well, and it's also that they think of themselves as warriors and as gods, which is somewhat the Corinthian perhaps referring to his own power. But it's also the feeling of power that these murderers get to feel when they take the life of someone else, that they get to do something that lets them feel closer to some kind of divinity in a way to have that kind of power even if they don't have power over their own lives, they can take it from someone else, which is terrible, but also kind of explains some of the psychology here. And I love then when in that last panel on that page, after the Corinthian has explained this and said that they're going to take turns, the, the colors inverse and suddenly they're in shadow and they look like they are just kind of shadow monsters, something that you'd expect that like, you know, manifested from ring wraiths or something. Yeah, and the smiles, the smiles, right? Their 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 teeth are just bright, shining white in the the darkness of this image. And again, they all they, they, there's this sense of the, the Joker here, right? Is is what keeps being sort of prompted to me every time I look at look at them uh, in this image. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of some of the imagery that Frank Miller tried to do with Sin City in terms of just having those white smiles. And kind of, you know, glasses or uh, covering eyes or eyes that are just out of frame, but just kind of how disquieting that can be with the use of just basically black and white art. So then we return from uh, the fate of the bogeyman, boogeyman, to uh, the disco going on, the dance night back at the convention. And uh, 
in retrospect, just as an aside, Glenn, um, I'm disappointed that the convention you and I went to recently did not have a dance night of some kind, uh, just because that would have been <laughs> um, something or, or not. I don't know. But um, no, I would have been all about it. No dance night. Uh, but even just with even if there hadn't been a dance, I mean, there wasn't a dance, but even even not having a dance, I would have I would have been satisfied by just having some good music like Timbuk three and the Velvet Underground as we get here. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. But um, uh, we cut to them where, again, Funland is uh, chatting with a guy uh, outside. And Leslie Klinger in the Annotated Sandman notes here that we get a little bit more about the character of Funland um, in Neil Gaiman's script. Again, he's referred to as Disneyland in the script. So, uh, quote, Disneyland does not have a very high IQ. He lives with his mom. His idea of gourmet cuisine is spooning the beans out of the can before he eats them. And he goes to Disneyland and murders small children after he rapes them. So, yep, that's great. But we get him then uh, waxing, you know, uh, poetical in a terrible way about how he uh, goes about his raping and murdering of children story. Uh, And then he runs into Rose, who he had not seen before. And um, he thinks that she appears to be... um, a beautiful little girl. And we've gotten remarks earlier, Glenn, um, not in this issue, but in prior issues about how Rose, uh, while she is, I believe, supposed to be in her 20s, she looks much younger um, than um, she uh, actually is. But Funland thinks that she looks much, much younger. So and this is leaves us with this kind of terrifying smile uh, expression on his face. So here we have even more direct peril coming to Rose. Right. And, you know, he's still wearing the wolf shirt. He's still got the wolf hat on. And Funland is he's going to try to kill Rose later. I mean, he's going to try to do to Rose what he does to these little kids at Disneyland, which, uh, as you've just said, is to to rape them and then murder them. He's, he's going to go to her room later uh, to do this, um, though that's there's going to be some time that passes in between. And that's actually something that I, I hadn't really noticed when I you know, in sort of earlier reads of this issue is, is that uh, he waits that Funland actually is able to, to have some delayed gratification here that he doesn't see her uh, decide that he wants to target her and then follow her or even just wait five minutes. But in fact, actually this is going to happen on the next day, which I, I had not noticed before, but I think is an interesting bit of characterization, uh, for him. I don't, you know, I don't quite know what to do with that, but I think it's an interesting bit of characterization for him. Well, I wonder if it's cause you know, when we get to him taking action, he talks about how Nimrod had said like, you know, look, don't involve yourself in serial killer here. You got to wait till you're 200 miles away. And I'm wondering if it's that he's waited so long because he does have a small amount of impulse control in a way, or if it's just that he's actually fearful that if, uh, Nimrod appears and looks for Funland, who should be staffing the table, and he's missing. Then Nimrod will find out what he's done, and then he's aware that upsetting a bunch of serial killers, um, as fake boogeyman realized too late, um, is not a good thing to do. Yeah, you know what? And, and actually, thinking thinking ahead about the logistics of how this actually does come about, he does in fact see Rose one more time in a public area, and then in that moment has no impulse control and does follow her. So uh, I was maybe making a little bit more out of that than than we should have, and and we might as well get to that bit. I mean, or at least get towards that bit because that's going to be the real climax of the story, or at least uh, a big part of the climax of the story. But we actually get a before we get there, we do get some more serial killer 
stuff, some more business with serial killers. And I'm really interested and really drawn to the conversation that Funland is having with yet another serial killer as he's sitting outside of a door. Uh, in the, the first case, it was outside the disco. In the this case, the next day, it's outside the auditorium. That's actually probably the, the same room, uh, but where Corinth, the Corinthian is going to make his guest of honor speech. I don't think that we learned the name of this serial killer that Funland is talking to, or really who is talking to, to Funland. But this guy is distraught because he did not come to this convention in order to carouse with other serial killers. He didn't come to this convention to brag about how awesome he is. He didn't come here to do a team-up killing. He came to this convention because he thought that he was going to find people who could help him stop being a serial killer. He thought that he was going to find other people. He thought this was a convention for people who know that being a serial killer is bad and that, they, of course, they don't actually want to be serial killers if they can stop it and that they would be able to help each other, that he'd be able to get some help, that he'd be able to stop being a serial killer. But he's distraught because no one has been interested in hearing him on this. No one has been interested in in helping him. This is really heartbreaking, this story, but it is also really fascinating because I think that it has been easy to be reading this issue so far as a form of uh, of black comedy. We've said black comedy several times, right? Wouldn't it be funny if serial killers had professional conventions the same way that, I, I don't know, insurance agents and dentists do? And there is a lot of that going on in the background, right? The absurd names, the ridiculous panel topics, the idea that there's even a film program going on here, and, and so on. There is a lot of black comedy in this story. But now we see that there really is something going on here that links back to the inciting incident of the entire saga, right? The imprisonment of Dream, because it is not just the people that the serial killers murder. And, and you know, we should be clear, murder in terrorizing and, and brutal ways. But it's not just those victims, not just those people who are victims of all of this, right? That the serial killers themselves, who have been twisted and corrupted by the Corinthians' presence outside of the dreaming, that those people are also victims here, that they're victims of this action that Roderick Burgess took back at the beginning of this story to, to begin with. That if that had not happened, right, if Dream had not been imprisoned, the Corinthian would not have walked the earth and this guy and Funland and Nimrod and everyone we've met here, none of them would be serial killers because this just wouldn't be a category of thing that exists in the world. In uh, the annotated Sandman, there's a bit from Neil Gaiman, in which he explains that this particular tale from this one killer that Funland is talking to is really quote, the core of the issue. Uh, it's trying to make a serial killer that people can identify identify with, not in an, in an, I'm going to do it myself way, but in a there, but, but for fortune go I kind of way. And he wanted, it goes on to explain a little bit. He wanted it to not just be all about like the Jasons and Freddies is the way he puts it. Um, and not just kind of the over the top. And we needed to see all that first before we see this particular person talk quote, this is really the core scene around which the whole thing rotates. If we lose this with all its Jasons and Freddies and a thousand unnamed splatter monsters. I'm sorry if anyone finds this overly explicit, but I trust you'll understand what it says and why it's there. And that explicitly he wants it to be that he show that he's just another human being who is just really, really, really messed up. Not that he is kind of a cartoony 
version of himself the way that we got, particularly in the panels, which again are very funny um, above. I particularly like the women in serial killing panel where it's, you know, kind of stereotypes taking shot at stereotypes kind of thing going on. And then the Candyman, Psycho Killer, El Dorado, just even the naming of these are great, which we talked about before in a prior issue where we saw the list of who was going to be coming. And this particular character, I think, is really interesting to me because uh, intentional or not, and, and probably it wasn't intentional, but you know, I, I did go reread Chesterton's uh, book Orthodoxy this week. This is, you know, this is what the show is as we go do this homework. And something that really struck me about one of the theological paradoxes that Chesterton writes about in that book is the the paradox of Christianity being able to be both just and merciful at the same time. And Chesterton gives an example of a person who's committed an extraordinarily heinous crime and what Christians are supposed to do, what Christianity's theology, uh, what Christianity's philosophy actually is, what Chesterton would say, uh, is about is treating the act with uh, with justice and treating the person with mercy uh, and that that is a paradox right that that if you're that Chesterton sees these things as being different ends of the same spectrum and you have to pick one point between them that you can't be at both ends of it at the same time but Chesterton says this is precisely what Christianity demands of us and this character here is a comp- was basically the person that Chesterton had in mind when he was writing about this particular theological paradox of Christianity. So I don't know if Gaiman intended for it to link back to, you know, his simple invocation of Chesterton's theological paradoxes, uh, almost as maybe kind of a throwaway line, though I don't think that's quite true earlier on. But it really struck me not so much when I was reading the story the first time, but when I went to Chesterton and had, you know, several pages of him talking about this sort of thing. But Funland, you know, while he was listening to this uh, gentleman talking or man talking, maybe I shouldn't call him a gentleman since he's a serial killer. While he's listening to this man talking, suddenly sees Rose again. And so he's lost all interest. At this point, Rose has discovered that Gilbert has left and there is a note left for us. And we don't get to see in the panel what the note says. Uh, The script does indicate that it says simply, I am sorry, G is all that is left for Rose. But Funland has uh, seen his target and decided that now is the time to strike. And so he goes to Rose's room and knocks and he had said that, you know, he had a message from her grandmother. So again, we've got the Red Riding Hood story kind of playing out for real here. We have the wolf at the door, not pretending to be the grandmother, but to be kind of an envoy from the grandmother. And that gets Rose to open her door at least enough that he can slam it the rest of the way open and begin to assault her. Yeah. And he is wearing this wolf shirt again and still his wolf hat. I will say that in this in, in, in the original version, the shirt that he's wearing actually looks to be a different shirt than we had seen him wear previously because it's a different color. And I thought that was really fascinating that he's got this wolf on all of these shirts and actually wondered if the wolf was even really on the shirt or if that's just not something that existed in the sort of representation of the story. But the, the recolored versions actually puts him in the same shirt. It's all the same color so that we know that he's just got this one shirt that he's wearing at the at the whole convention. 
or he just has lots of versions of the same shirt that he <laughs> loves so much. It could be either way. Yes, as as someone with literally 15 of the same just black t-shirt and it's basically all I wear. Uh, yeah, I will believe that about Funland. And we get some more about Funland's character here. We don't quite get the the level of detail that you you read to us from the the, the bits of script that were, were left out. But he does talk about the song It's a Small World and how much he loves it and how they can pretend that this hotel room is actually his amusement park. He calls Rose little girl. He also addresses, he speaks to his mother, who is not there. It's very clear that he has some issues about childhood and about children. We are going to see a little bit more on that in a moment. But he also says, right, and this is in in lining up with the, the story of Little Red Riding Hood, as Gilbert has told it to us, he says that Rose can take off her dress because she won't need it anymore, right? This is the same thing that the wolf said in Gilbert's version of this story. But, you know, this is Rose's story. Rose is going to survive this. And she has Gilbert's note. She has his instructions to call out the, the name Morpheus. And Dream shows up. He appears. He tells Funland, whose name, it turns out, is actually Nathan Diskin, which Dream, of course, knows because he knows this about all of us. He tells him to stop. And Funland protests. He says, well, Rose is his friend. Rose is mine, right? He says. But Dream says that Rose belongs to no one except perhaps herself. Uh, We don't need to to dwell on it. We've been running long in this episode already. But that perhaps there is interesting, right? I wonder if that applies to all of us, that maybe we belong to ourselves, but maybe we don't. Or if maybe this is special because Rose is a dream vortex. Uh, But at any rate, Dream puts Funland to sleep where he dreams of the children that he has murdered. And In particular, right, he dreams of them forgiving him and inviting him to play with them. Uh, And here we can see that his, uh, you know, psychopathy is is really rooted in some childhood trauma. Uh, But here again is this this idea of of mercy, idea of forgiveness, right? Something that's a cornerstone for Chesterton showing up here in this story. Uh, And as for Rose, right, she also is asleep, though it is not clear to me, and and I'd love your input here, Brenda, it's not clear to me if she succumbs to the dream sand as well, or if she was knocked out by Funland or something else entirely. But in either case, Dream commands her to heal and breathe and then to leave this building because he's got other business here. Yeah, it's not clear to me what state Rose is in other than just it looks like she is on a mission to get out of the hotel as quickly as possible at this point. The uh, Regarding Funland, the Annotated Sandman notes that the dream is reminiscent of Oscar Wilde's The Selfish Giant, in which um, one of the children is playing in the giant's garden, leads the giant to paradise um, as a religious parable. And so it's interesting to me, Glenn, and I don't know what you make of the fact that you know, we've seen Dream at times give people nightmares, waking nightmares, always waking nightmares, happy endings otherwise. This isn't quite the level of happy ending Dream that Funland has to the extent that Dream gave John Constantine's ex when he recovered his bag of sand, which she gets to, you know, walk off to the sunset. But it feels kind of close. And so I, I, I'm just – you know, it, it, where I wish Dream sometimes would be a little bit more vicious to people who are vicious and terrible, this seems like such a pleasant dream to give Funland. And I, I don't know what your thoughts are on what, if anything, we're supposed to take about Dream's character or levels of interest or disinterest in people at this point. 
This is a great observation. I hadn't thought about this at all or, or really taken that kind of stock of it. But this is a mercy, right? To, to give him this dream that this is uh, this is a mercy in the sense of of, of the, the side of Christian virtue that we've, we've talked about a little bit already in this episode, which we're going to find paralleled with what's going to happen next. The, the business that Dream has here, what he's going to do is not going to be merciful at all. And that has me wonder then if if Dream actually intended for Funland to have this particular dream here in this moment, or if he didn't bother exercising any control over that, that he didn't choose this dream for him, that this is simply the dream that happens when Funland is, succumbs to the, the dream sand, but the dream didn't exercise any particular will over that. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, might as a, as a way to square that, because this is not how he is going to treat the other serial killers in just a moment. You're right. And and perhaps it's a manifestation of the fact that Funland has such a limited understanding of the world. Perhaps he doesn't have nightmares because he doesn't fully grasp kind of how terrible he is as well. Um, and so instead, he when he dreams, this is what he gets. He gets a very simplistic kind of the Disneyland ride experience for him of um, a bunch of children who, you know, aren't making fun of him and aren't taunting him. And, you know, he is just with them and, you know, we don't get that he is able to then abuse them. Instead, he's skipping with them and holding hands. And so perhaps that's just the way his mind works and reflexively dream is not making a decision here. It's just the way that the dreaming plays out for him in that moment. And it certainly makes me wonder what types of dreams Funland normally has. I mean, we're told that this is the most wonderful dream that he's he's ever had. And clearly, right, this is something that deeply concerns him, right? That he just he wants to play with these kids uh in some in in some way, right? I mean it's obviously it's a horrible and, and twisted way, but that here in his dream, right, that he's able to do that properly, that the dream is is about the, the, the thing that is different in this dream versus in his waking life is him, actually. It's not maybe the kids so much. And I, I wonder mm-hmm. what his, his actual dreams are, are like, that if it's just him trying to, to, to have real relationships with kids and then, but failing at it over and over again, which is also what he's doing in real life. Yeah, well, then we jump to um, the Corinthian who is giving his keynote that everyone's been waiting for, and they're all such big fans of the Corinthian, so they've all been waiting for this too, and and we've been perhaps interested to see what the Corinthian is going to say when he's not just cutting out eyeballs. <laughs> right, because the Corinthian actually didn't realize that he had to make this speech. Uh, he, he was told uh, as they were driving back from uh, from killing uh, the fake boogeyman that he's going to have to make this speech. So he's maybe not actually had all that much time to prepare for it and, and maybe hasn't really prepared for it all that well. I mean, he's, you know, the hero of his story, so he doesn't have to prepare for speeches, I suppose. But the speech opens with really something that sounds like a mediocre like stump speech from a politician it is just full of meaningless platitudes but there actually are some really interesting word choices here right he says that serial killers are the american dreamers that they are driving down a holy road to true knowledge that's paved with blood and gold and 
this in particular, this really draws on two motifs, right? One of them is Americana, the, the American dream, right? driving, also money, right? These are things that are, are hallmarks of American identity. We've talked about that a little bit already. But the other set of images that he's drawing on here is biblical, right? He talks about holiness. He talks about true knowledge, about knowledge that has been hidden or kept from most people. And if we pair this up with him also thinking about uh, how serial killers are gods, right? Which he told Philip Sitz when they were they were torturing him to to death just the, the a few pages ago, just the night before, that he is basically here paraphrasing the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. At this point, he's he's telling this audience of serial killers that if they kill people, they will be like. God, that this is this is what it is that makes them gods or makes them like God. And and in fact, we've already encountered, right, a whole panel at the convention that discusses this idea, right? This was this was a topic of discussion at the religious panel, right? The extent to which these people are gods or are agents of God, right? Are we gods or are we holy warriors? Or are we both, right? We, but you know, can can we be both? But he is Gaiman is suffusing all of this with with specifically and explicitly, you know, uh, Christian or at least biblical language here, which is really fascinating. But it also does, as I think you're right, it does come across a lot like a stump speech. Um, it's really pompous. Um, <laughs> it's really glossing over kind of whatever justifications sound nice to make both the Corinthian as well as his audience feel that they are special, that they have a unique role in society and the world and and none of it's true right no none of it is is true but of course what matters here the action of the story here is that dream is present dream is in the audience and he stands up and he approaches the podium and he's not mad at the corinthian he's really just disappointed which also i think is really fascinating because he's not upset that the corinthian has caused the brutal deaths of hundreds and, and really maybe thousands of people by creating the whole notion of serial killer to begin with what he is upset about is that that's all the corinthian did Right, that he didn't actually do something more imaginative, more creative with his time here on earth. He says, 40 years walking the earth, honing yourself, infecting others with your joy of death. And what have you given them? Nothing. Just something else for people to be scared of. That's all. And so Dream uncreates the Corinthian, right? He doesn't send him back to the dreaming or he doesn't imprison him the way that he did Brute and Glob, right? Who is also, you know, captured after they've gotten out of the, the dreaming. He destroys the Corinthian and he says that when he remakes him, he's not going to make him so flawed and, and petty. And I cannot here help but wonder what the Corinthian could actually have done in our world that would have impressed Dream, right? That he What he could have done that was not this that would have impressed dream do you have any ideas about that i don't know brainstorming about even more awful things that, that could have happened you know I, I don't um and i've tried to think about it a little bit but in some ways i also feel like i'm i'm almost falling into i mean a lovecraftian excuse of the unnameable the undescribable like <laughs> I, I i don't know but i imagine it would be unspeakable i wouldn't be able to speak of it if i knew it um it's unspeakable kind of terror that he could have done if he were closer to perfection given what havoc he has wrought being what he is um it's also interesting to me that dream makes the comment that he you know spent 40 years on earth but that means that for decades after dream was first imprisoned the corinthian either because of fear or loyalty or something 
didn't like he didn't look for the first excuse to jump from the dreaming. He he hung around for quite a while waiting for Morpheus to come back, um, perhaps, um, which says maybe some interesting things about either fear of dream or it may say things about loyalty of the Corinthian in a strange way, I think. Yeah, I got the sense the Bruton Glob also stuck around for quite a while. Uh, certainly the timeline that we have of their story does not go back all the way to the First World War. It, it just doesn't go back that far. So yeah, we have to wonder, were they sticking around because they thought, well, surely, you know, maybe one, maybe they just don't even know what's happened to Dream. They don't know that he's been in prison. Just sometimes he's gone. That it, it takes, you know, after 40 years, you think, gosh, he might not be coming back. Maybe we can go. Or that that was at that point that they found out that he'd been imprisoned and said, oh, wow, yeah, we can get out of here. Or... Does it just take for? Does it just take thirty years of work to get out of the dreaming on your own? You know, if you're not actually dream, don't have his permission to leave. I don't know that we'll ever find that out. Though, you know, we do still have one more of these um, these major dreams that's out there running around. Uh, who, you know, perhaps we will meet at some point and maybe get some more information about how this all works. Yeah, we don't know what happened to Fiddler's Green at this point, and so um, if we do ever see Fiddler's Green again, then we might get a sense as to where it's at and what it's been up to. Um, but, you know, then we have this grand dream saying he's disappointed in the Corinthian, as you said, and the Corinthian's response is to, to pull out a knife, which almost makes Dream's point at this point, because it's just like, you've been undone, I'm disappointed in you, and then he pulls out a knife that, of course, isn't going to do anything, which almost, to me, makes Dream's argument for him. It's It's... It, it, it's a weird, given kind of the apparent rigidness and shininess we're even given in the art of this blade, it's a strange kind of almost imagery of impotence here, right? That the Corinthian is just, his blade is nothing. And Dream can just ignore it, literally phase his hand out, and then Dream can just make the, unmake the Corinthian, quite literally. Yeah, this is this this lack of imagination again, right? That that's that's all you can think to do here is to pull a a, a knife that you know is not going to do anything. And you know, it is interesting to me, right, that he is he's disappointed in the Corinthian uh, for his lack of creativity, his lack of imagination, but did not feel that way about Bruton Glob, who I guess did find a particularly clever, imaginative way to hide themselves in another person to create their own private dream domain to set themselves up as kind of petty Morpheuses or, or petty Morphe, I guess is the, would be the plural of, of Morpheus, I suppose that that impressed dream, or at least didn't, make him it didn't disappoint him right but the corinthian just walking around kind of having a good life and receiving the accolades of of other people that that strikes him as just low as 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 unimpressive and disappointing well here we have an even dreams you know speech to the corinthian here you know he tells the corinthian you were my masterpiece like i think brute and glob there's low expectations it's like hey they managed (laughs) to do anything you know Dream clearly has a favored child here, and it is the Corinthian, perhaps even more than like Lucian. Um, the Corinthian is, was his masterpiece, and yet this is it. This is the most of my masterpiece. Could, could the Corinthian ever have met up to that expectation of dreams anyways? Like, um, given dream being dream, could anyone, any creature ever actually live up to what dream would hope it would be able to achieve yeah and i suppose on some level right the disappointment uh in the creation has to be disappointment in yourself as the creator 
as well, right? That that this is maybe dream, you know, feeling I don't know, fifty percent disappointed at his his own creativity as act of creating this, and but then also maybe fifty percent in sort of the form or you know of a parent, right, being disappointed in his in his child. Um, and so, yeah, he's, I think you know, dream here perhaps disappointed in himself as much, if not more, than disappointed in the Corinthian. Oh, that's a good point, Glenn. It is a poor artist who blames their tooth-eyed monster. <laughs> yes, everyone knows that that old truism. That old truism. <laughs> All right. Well, we are at the end of this story, or at least very near it. The, this, the, the rose part of the story wraps up with the return of, of Gilbert, who is carrying an unconscious Jed in his arms. He, he found Jed in the Corinthians trunk, and he's not in good shape. They need to get Jed to a hospital right away. But that's all we're going to get of that in this issue, because the issue is actually going to end with the serial killers again. We're going to get a bit of uh, of ring composition here. Uh, Dream finishes up with the serial killers here, and he breaks the fantasy that the Corinthian has created, this fantasy that they are maltreated heroes of their own stories. And now they will know the the truth, which is that they aren't special. They don't matter. They are not heroes. And this, I think, is a really great demonstration of how this link between dream and story works for, for Gaiman. This is really fantastic. And the last page of this issue, then, this is where we get the ring composition, because this mirrors the first page. We get the return of our narrator, who maybe is Matthew the Raven, maybe is not. The serial killers now are reluctant. They're uncertain because they know now that they're not holy. They are not the light. They're unholy. And they are, in fact, darkness. And that's the end of this issue. And all of this ending scene here with deconstructing, uncreating the Corinthian, but then especially what he does to these serial killers, this goes back to thinking about Funland's dream, because here... Dream very clearly wants to punish these serial killers, right? He's not giving them the dream that they've always wanted, the best dream they've ever had. He is the malevolent, maybe the, um, certainly the omnipotent, angry creator god of the Old Testament, as you've pointed out before in previous issues, that he takes on this guise from time to time, that he is this omnipotent creator god who has not created a world that is purely good for humans. He's created uh, a world in which evil exists, but also in which he can be disappointed in his creations. It's also, we see him here in this role, punishing his creations as, as well. And all of that is, I think, really in stark contrast with the type of God that G.K. Chesterton envisions, the type of God that he talks about in his theological uh, paradoxes. And in particular, right, one of the fundamental problems of uh, theological, also, you know, philosophical problems really of existing in the world, but perhaps maybe especially of Christianity, is what's called theodicy or the, the problem of evil, right? Which is that, you know, why does evil exist? Why do bad things happen to good people? If God made this world and made us and is a good person, if God is good, then why does this world suck sometimes? And why do our lives suck sometimes? Why does evil happen? Why do bad things happen to us? This is a theological paradox that uh, uh, smarter people than than I have spent a lot of time and a lot of ink working through. And it's something that that Chesterton deals with a little bit, but actually one of the big criticisms of G.K. Chesterton as a philosopher is, and a, a theologer is that he doesn't really deal with the, the problem of 
evil, the, this issue of theodicy, nearly as much as maybe he should. And it really jumped out to me that that's the theme here of this issue, and that we see this at the end here with Dream kind of stepping in as the vengeful, angry Old Testament god. Right, and he his vengeance is kind of to lift the blanket of ignorance from the minds of these people. It's, it's actually not, you know, denying them something. It's actually in some ways returning to them a better sense as to how little they matter and how in that way kind of terrible they are, but that it doesn't matter. And it's in contrast, the Corinthian was telling them this story in which you're warriors and gladiators and gods. And here we have dream saying, no, you're none of those things. You're just petty, small people who have to take from others to feel some amount of kind of approaching closer to wholeness. Which, I mean, I think kind of gets us also on, and we might as well talk about it now, let's talk about the title of this particular issue, Collectors. And when I think about that title, I think about, you know, obviously, lots of times with serial killers, we're told that they collect bits of their victims, you know, depending on whatever their thing is, or at least that's the way certainly things um, have come to us in pop culture. Um, But then I think about collectors who are not serial killers. I think about people who collect just like versions of the Hobbit, say, or anything. And (laughs) there could be fun kind of distracting things. And But sometimes collecting a thing, even say collecting a comic or comics, may be a way in which you partially define yourself, but it's also a way that you're never quite complete. Like I've never met someone who is a collector of a thing who thinks that they have every version of that thing ever. And there would be no other version out there. You may have someone who thinks that they have every version they know of, but they're on the lookout for another one. And you know, that can be innocuous or even bring joy to that individual and other individuals to, to have that kind of collector. Um, Or certainly I think, you know, Neil Gaiman should, you know, probably feels good as he should about there are so many people who collect, as we have, different versions of the same comic of his. (laughs) Um, And that, you know, he should feel good about what we think of him and his masterpiece in that way. But it also is kind of the people collect something because what they have unto themselves is not quite enough. And maybe that's something about faith as well, though, Glenn. Maybe it's that, you know, you know, G.K. Chesterton and others, they, they need something outside themselves to also make them feel whole as the faith is part of them, but it's faith in something that's external. I, I, what are your thoughts on the title and some of these themes? Yeah, I'll talk about the, the, what the issue you've raised here about the theme first, which is that, yeah, in many ways here, I think, right, the Corinthian has, set himself up as or allowed himself anyway to be revered as a a kind of god a kind of false god and that the behavior that he has uh, you know instituted in the world right the idea of serial killing that he has created in the world and gotten people to imitate to to mimic uh has has become kind of has has taken the place of a of a type of faith has become a type of religion for these people in the sense that it provides a type of identity it provides uh, also a type of community actually that we see here and and also then a sense of purpose and and a, a sense of of place in the world all of which is terrifying right because it's it's perverted i mean it's 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 you know it is 
perverse, but that it has actually some of the trappings of of religion, and that you know what Dream has done here is come in and kind of smash up the false idol that the Israelites have been worshiping while you know Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments, or you know any of the other number of times that that this has to happen uh, in in the Old Testament, and and. Uh, and and disabuse the people of this, and you know, I said that he was being vengeful, and I I wonder if that is true. I, I you know, certainly it is vengeful to, uh, certainly people are going to suffer in some way by having this disillusion or this illusion taken from them, this happy illusion taken from them. But I wonder actually if they can go heal now in 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 some way, if they can face justice, you know, human justice on earth, and then also find maybe some actual mercy for their soul in some way, you know, and, and mercy on a soul. I mean, literally a line in this, in this story uh, that we didn't visit. I, you know, I think this is all a lot more complicated, you know, than, than we can really hash out. Neither of us have any particular training in this, but I would love to talk more about that, uh, especially with people with better training than we have on the forum, but to get to the the title, you know, we actually have the title as uh, as part of the text of the story here, because this is also the title of a, a famous novel of the, the 1960s, or really, I guess this is called Collectors, but that's The Collector. But it's a, a novel of the 1960s by John Fowles. It's about a serial killer. Um, I've never read this book, but it was adapted into a, a film in the 1960s as well that stars a very young Terrence Stamp, who of course went on to play General Zod in the best Superman movie. And I don't actually know if this is the origin of the term collector to refer to a serial killer in our pop culture, but I, I, it might be the case. It might be something that Fowles made up. I would be happy to learn otherwise. But uh, but yeah, I think that's where the, the title comes from, uh, at least sort of in, a, in a, a specific kind of literary history way. Yeah, I and mean, that, that might very well be where it's from. And, and I too would be interested, though, in hearing... Um, in the forum is what people think about some of these issues. And, you know, it, for those who have studied theology far more than we have, even, I mean, I'm reminded of the idea of knowledge of good and evil. And in some ways, Dream has now provided them that. And, and, but that may provide them with a greater capacity to seek forgiveness or mercy for the terrible things they have done. Cause, cause they, they probably can't look for that. Um, from kind of a benevolent God if they don't acknowledge where they're at. Yeah, that's that's an awesome reading of this, right? I mean, when I, I was trying to call attention earlier and maybe doing a bad job of it, of the way in which the Corinthian is using biblical language in this speech, but it is that incident that he's drawing on, right? Where he's saying, where, you know, in Genesis, the serpent says, do this and you will be like God. In that case, it is eat the, 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 the fruit from this tree. But the Corinthian is saying, if you kill, you will be like God. But, mm -hmm. you know, that is obviously, that's that's a lie, right? And But in fact, what he's actually done is, it, it's not, you know, that he's gotten them to eat from the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. He has actually taken the knowledge of good and evil away from these people, and maybe Dream has restored it. Um, that's fantastic. That's a brilliant rating of what's, what's going on here. And then the cover, um, we kind of have this blue kind of... Uh, braided or fabric woven backdrop against a photographic image, which appears to be, you know, the Corinthian. We see the eyes and we see a kind of ripped up coffee stained, maybe bloodied map that clearly is of Texas. Yes. Um, Am Amarillo, right, right there front and center. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we've got uh, uh, the, the, the lower part of the map that's down there appears to be 
what would also be kind of a similar, it seems like it should be attached to that piece up there, but, um, but what are your thoughts on the cover? Um, and why Texas? Right. Well, when we first saw the Corinthian, uh, at the beginning, beginning of this uh, of this story arc uh he was in Amarillo Texas so that so that makes some sense there but you know the 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 maps here not just of Texas but uh, you know like the Dakotas I guess that is right this these these places that are wide open and we're just really great for highway driving and for trying to find the American dream right this sort of middle parts of America that represent so much of what we think of as the American dream open land for us to go you know have farms on or to just to migrate westward right is a big part of the sort of mythos of america and americana and and then you know highway driving right is a massive part of our identity as americans certainly is a massive part of the way that people who live in europe for example uh think of uh you know as being kind of quintessential to both america and americans so i think that's really what's going on there i am glad to say that this is definitively also the corinthian because i had said before that i thought a cover image was the corinthian and you pointed out how dumb i was and clearly now here is the proof that that i that was a very bad reading on my part of that previous uh, previous cover because this is definitely the corinthian here but i don't know the cold blue backdrop other than just that it, it you know, on the color wheel plays off nicely with the, you know, Kool-Aid red stains on the map. But is there something we're supposed to take from the blue fabric? Is that? I think this is, I think this is carpet. I think this is hotel carpet. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I mean, I actually just looking at it, I think, oh, this is like the carpet that Dave McKean has in some room in his house or his studio, wherever he does these, these things. But it actually looks like kind of, you know, worn hotel carpet, hotel lobby carpet in, in particular. Wow. I, yeah, no, that, that is now my headcanon, um, as well for this. Cause I think that's great, particularly for now, for me to think that the, um, it's just the way that the, the weave is worn, um, which is why there's the blotchiness of the darker blues. It's not just like the way the shadow is falling. It's just that that's just the way that carpeting looks as people walk on it and press down parts of it and walk more in some areas and less in others. Yeah. A lot of white wine spills here on this, on this blue fabric in the background. Well, we should pick some favorite panels as well. Brent, what, what do you got for us? I'd gone back and forth on my favorite panel and then decided as we were talking about it, that I think my favorite panel, and it could go with either one of these two, but it's when we're we're getting the Gilbert story about Red Riding Hood. It's of the wolves. And it's the fact that the black and white images of the wolves or in the recolorized version, just the eyes are red and otherwise the black and white um, images of the wolves. I think more so the, the second one where we've got what could be two wolves. But I think this plays on the idea that as we were talking about the idea that there can be many wolves that are the one true wolf of this story. And the fact that that stands off both from the art of what's going on in the hotel room with Gilbert and Rose talking and, you know, the claustrophobic convention space, as well as the, it's separated even from the panels of the story of Red Riding Hood and the wolf itself, where that's just kind of a normal, normal looking art, relatively speaking. But here, the, the, the way that they've decided to depict the art of the wolf, it's just it's it's more of an abstraction of the wolf as a terrifying kind of menacing thing that looks like something that is more of a dream logic. And I don't necessarily see art in this issue that kind of evokes a similar quality. And I'll be interested in uh, for those who are more familiar with art styles in the forums who want to talk about kind of how this is accomplished, if this is charcoal rubbings to do some of the uh, outer parts or something else. But um, 
I don't know. But um, it's when Dream shows up and he has Rose kind of in his arms after rescuing her from uh, Funland and the image of dream and a little bit of Rose, but more so of dream is evocative of the wolf as well. So here again, we have this kind of abstract idea of something from outside our world um, that may play out, you know, when we define it, when we look closer at it, the lines sharpen and we get the comical image of the wolf with its paws over the blanket, right? Which we get on one of the other pages, but here we've just kind of got this menacing, you know, wolf or wolves kind of perhaps growling, perhaps not in the recolorized again, it has red eyes. It's more menacing. I don't know if I prefer it that way or not. I think it's more definitively with the red eyes, kind of a, a malevolent force. I think without the red eyes, it's more just a wild thing. Um, and I'm not sure which way I feel as to whether it's better if it's just a wild force versus a malevolent and wild force. But uh, I think that's my favorite panel is the, the double wolf panel on uh, page six of this issue. Well, this is what I had picked as well, though. I'll, I'll say a few things about another panel that I really liked, because in some ways this was actually my second choice. But then reading and reading and reading this week, I just kept getting drawn more and more to this. And I think you changed in the middle of doing this episode as well. So I this did. has some kind of magical pull. So is your us. second choice my second choice? Let's find oh, out. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. I want to say a couple more things about the wolves, you know, because, you know, we haven't yes. yet already. But but one of the things that I, I find really bold and brave about the choice to do this is that these wolves take up as much, if not even a little bit more, than all of the space that's given to the actual narrative that's happening here. That's a bold use of the space on your page to just have this image that uh, is not that does not directly show the story that you're telling or link to it in any way and is in fact in a dis, an art style that's totally distinct from anything else that's going on here where they just kind of stand totally outside of not just the story that Gilbert is telling but the story that we ourselves are reading I find that to be a really brave and bold choice that I, I, I find really interesting but then also like you know it kind of suggests the the some something metaphysical going on here if we're looking in the recolored version and they've got the red eyes, then maybe, you know, they're just kind of there to remind us, the readers, that wolves exist and that wolves are dangerous. I don't know, kind of like the way that just there's stuff going on with oranges and the Godfather, right? That doesn't really amount to anything. It's just kind of an image to remind us, the audience, of of, of danger. But in the, the original version where they don't have these red eyes, they just kind of look like these are wolves that exist some somewhere out you know out in some kind of platonic sense and they've come to hear the story that they're listening to gilbert tell this story mm. right mm -hmm. and i just i'm fascinated by 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 how this works on on the page no i mean that's a good point i hadn't considered that the idea that the wolves also as sentient beings as well I mean, <laughs> if you're a wolf, the story of Red Riding Hood in an existential sense is a very different kind of story. Right. Young wolves have to hear this story, too, I guess, to learn how to be wolves, uh, which is not, not something I had thought about before, not a way I had thought about that. Before. I wonder if uh, for them, it's always the version where uh, 
the woodsman shows up and butchers the wolf or Red Riding Hood, you know, gets her comeuppance and butchers the wolf. So it's a warning tale to wolves of be careful about feasting on humans, even if they are really dumb and tell you where their grandmother lives and doors are unlocked and they'll undress in front of you. Perhaps just focus on the rabbits. Yeah, I I would like I would love to read this too. Like just versions versions of fairy tales that are actually for you know the audience that um, you know represents the, the 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 villain of the fairy tale. Uh, that's not put very well, but you catch my meaning. And I don't know. <laughs> and, we could do a whole anthology of that. Well, we'll uh, in a future salmon issue. We won't get about wolves, but we will get kind of the dreaming from the perspective of an animal. So this is perhaps laying the early groundwork for that as a concept. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd forgotten about that. Well, I will I will just share what my second favorite panel was, which is actually just on the 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 page previous to this. It's the the hotel room. It's Rose's hotel room. It's the first image that we get there of this massive window and Rose leaning against the wall next to it and it's all just light and shadow with uh Rose thinking about a, a perfect world and how it is not a perfect world because she's just heard this news about her her family and in particular this news about her brother i think it's just a beautiful it's just a beautiful image but that it also does the job of capturing what's going on inside the the character as well yeah it it captures her isolation so well and it's really well done but even that whole page where she's just alone and when we have some of the uh shots where we see the colors in her hair so she looks so kind of otherworldly relative to the stale hotel with its now you know busted blue carpeting in the entryway that we can think about well, what was your backup panel? <laughs> uh, I think my backup panel was probably just when Dream picked up the tiny uh, skull of the Corinthian, just because I loved the playing with the size there. And I loved what it said about the Corinthian just being a tiny thing that was kind of in appearance blown up to this, as we've talked about, almost superhero pr- proportions of a, of a normal person, but that he fits in between Dream's index finger and thumb, this tiny little skull. Um, and we'll actually see that skull again later, uh, many issues from now. Um, so we can talk about it again then. But um, but I like what it says about the Corinthian relative to Dream in terms of power level. Um, but also it's just a fun bit of art where you get to see the teeth. Because obviously teeth, similar to other bones, you know, when the flesh disappears, the, the teeth are still there. So it's still kind of creepy. But when it's tiny and looks like something that can just be crushed by kids in the hall um, from a distance, crushing someone's head kind of look, it, it, it's, it's almost comical or it looks like something that also could be added to a collection. And in some way it makes dream a collector himself. He's a collector of nightmares and dream creatures. Yeah, I like your reading of this a lot. I, I when I saw this this image, which I, is one that I like, I just was thinking of Hamlet. I just was like, you know, poor poor Yorick. You know, <laughs> I knew him well, uh, and, but I, I like your reading of it much better. Well, before we sign off this episode, uh, we should talk a little bit about why there are so many panels that we can have each two favorite ones, and why we have gone well over the two hour mark on our recording here. Uh, why was this an extra length? issue was this an extra length issue because vertigo or dc wanted gaiman to do an extra length issue or did gaiman go to them and say my story's too big for a 24 page issue i don't actually know (laughs) 
Oh, I, I thought for sure this would be the first thing Klinger would have to say no, about the annotated No, there is sandwich. no mention other than the fact that it is long. Um, and in the Highbender uh, interviews and stuff with Neil, there's not a discussion of it being a longer one. So uh, I don't know if it's just that occasionally you can do a longer one if your story doesn't all fit or if I don't. That uh, it's advertised in the DC list this week as, quote, Sandman 14, Sandman finally comes face to face with the Corinthian at a serial killers convention with an exclamation point, double sized excitement, exclamation point. And that's it. Like, there's not more. So this was was hyped up. And so I don't know if it was something where Neil asked and Karen you know, Berger as the editor was able to get permission from DC to make this a longer one, or if there was, you know, some attempt here to just kind of push for more of it. I mean, I, I think the decision to have so much happen in this issue and to resolve things um, was a good decision. Cause I think if you had split this part way where Rose was still in jeopardy, if you had done a scene break where like, Maybe Funland hasn't broken into her room, but he has seen her and she's left at the serial killer convention. I think it's a lot darker place to leave your audience for a month than if you wrap things up where you get to see, you know, your character show up. But it also is, you know, our character, you know, our our protagonist, um, if he is our protagonist. I guess our protagonist is really Rose at this point. But pretending the the person in the comic, Sandman himself, he doesn't appear on the cover. Um, he doesn't appear until the last few issues of it. So if you cut it in half, you'd have a Sandman comic with no Sandman, which we'll see in the future perhaps. But at this point, maybe they're not as comfortable with the idea that you should do that. In any case, you know, whatever the actual length of this issue, I, I'm with you. I'm glad that it was not split up, right? If we imagine that it was Game Insane, this is just how many pages my story my story takes. I'm glad it wrapped up because what we've got now is not just the end of an issue, but this is the end of uh, of an act. This is an act break in the story where uh, big chunks of what we've been following have have come together. Other chunks have, have fallen off. And when we pick back up with the next issue, the story is going to be progressing uh, towards a new a new end. And that works, I think, much better at the end of an issue or the end of a chapter, right? When, when when writers are writing novels, they don't end their acts in the middle of a chapter, right? They do that at the end of a chapter. And I think that was the that was certainly the right move. But on this note of extra length, we have uh, we have done an extra length episode here, but I think that that is all right because uh, we are going to be off next month as the network takes its holiday break. But we will be back on January 14th. So I will say that now is a great time to check out some of our other podcasts. If you haven't done that already, you can read Gene Wolfe's novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, and then you can listen to the 40 episodes or so that Brandon and I devoted to it. Uh, there's a lot more talk about Charles Perrault fairy tales there as well. Or you can hear us discuss some of Gaiman's contemporaries, such as China Mieville and Caitlin R. Kiernan over on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. And in fact, one of the Kiernan stories that we've done is about a serial killer who goes by The Collector. Uh, in fact, he may even have been at this convention. That certainly is a bit of fan fiction that I would love to read. And if you have already exhausted all of that content, if you're listening to all of our shows and you're caught up on them, you can join us on Patreon to get access to another three or four dozen podcast episodes, including some G.K. Chesterton coverage as well. And you can do that at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. But for now, that's going to do it for this episode. And I am Glenn McDorman. 
And I'm Brent Helt. Next time we'll continue Rose's story uh, without the serial killer convention uh, getting in our way in The Doll's House, Part 6, Into the Night. And until then, pleasant dreams.